Section 4, Top 10 Trends in Crypto Policy. In last year's report, I covered a lot of ground regarding the state of crypto policy in the West. This year, I'll recap some of the players and major issues that made headlines and and focus on the new legislative updates and regulatory challenges. Many of last year's issues are still relevant and ongoing, so if you think I've missed something, go back and reread the old stuff. Law moves slower than crypto. This year, Congress and the regulatory state have been busy in both the U.S. and Europe. I continue to believe that the U.S. is the most important battleground for crypto policy in the world. Thank you, First, Fourth, Fifth, and Tenth Amendments. So while we'll take a short detour into Europe in one section of this chapter, most of the focus will stay right here at my home base. I believe 2023 could very well end up being transformational for crypto in terms of permanent law. We should get exchange oversight clarity and stablecoin regulation by law, not regulatory turf wars. And we should make progress on setting standards for disclosures and consumer protections in an ecosystem that desperately needs to fix its trust deficit with the general public. The OGs of the exchange and stablecoin sectors want common sense regulation. Even some DeFi cowboys see the merits of good policy these days. We can't stand by idly and watch people get hurt by these inventions. Otherwise, crypto will deserve to wither. If you don't want to read 25 pages of my political thriller, here's a thread I wrote that covers the basics. It's going to be a big year. Let's go. Section 4.1. How a bill almost became a law. My experience digging into the most front and center bill, the Digital Commodities and Consumer Protection Act, these past few months may provide some helpful perspective on where crypto policy is heading next year. Before we talk about where the DCCPA and other crypto legislation is heading, we have to talk about where we've been and what happened this fall. Given the high-stakes moment crypto now faces and the significant policy and regulatory headwinds, I'll avoid divulging nitty-gritty details shared with me in confidence and good faith, and will try not to over-editorialize. With one caveat, I'll break my no-SBF rule in this section. His actions provide critical and lasting context to any analysis, so I'll share details about my intersections with him and the FTX team to give you a full readout. Just the facts. Then we can talk about my impression of what's coming next for crypto policy. I also want to set the record straight with respect to my brief, limited relationship with Sam. I want to highlight how cunning I suspected him to be, lest anyone be tempted to fall prey to his media-fueled, carefully crafted, and totally bogus post-bankruptcy redemption narrative. What I saw in my interactions with Sam was not someone who missed nuance or critical details, or delegated control to his subordinates, or chose his words without caution and precision. He's brilliant, and I think manipulative. He is not negligent or incompetent, as his crisis PR team seems to be positioning him these days but rather strategic, calculating, and self-pitying. Like most other people in crypto, I had no idea Sam might be a criminal, though that is now clear. But I had been suspicious of him and his motives for many months privately before getting more deeply involved in crypto policy conversations this fall in D.C. My misgivings deepened when I began actively working to understand just what the hell he was thinking in slamming the DCCPA down the rest of the industry's throat. I'll acknowledge up front that I know there will be suspicion, misdirected anger, and baseless accusations thrown around towards anyone who steps foot in D.C. and engages with policymakers on matters related to crypto regulation. You can choose whether to believe anything I claim in this section, though I did keep the receipts, and I won't hold it against you. Criticism and skepticism are healthy antibodies for crypto. No one should or could pretend to speak on behalf of the entire crypto industry on issues of existential importance. But engagement in D.C. is essential, and there are experts whose full-time jobs are to pound the pavement in D.C. to help our industry. 
We shouldn't abdicate responsibility for crypto policy to hired guns, but we also shouldn't drown the lifeguards we have on staff. I personally chose to invest time and learn more about the levers at work in D.C. starting this fall. Here's what I saw. Context. I won't play the hindsight game and pretend I knew the extent of what was going on with FTX and Alameda financially and operationally, but for a while I was getting increasingly negative impressions of both. Number one. By early 2022, it was clear that Alameda had made lots of money through a number of dubious trading schemes. They invested in tokens early and farmed them as mercenaries, then appeared to offload them to unwitting buyers at warp speed. They were notorious for backing low-float, high-FTV projects and keeping a ton of tokens for themselves, which now seems to have been a part of an allegedly fraudulent collateral shell game. A lot of people farmed tokens and played the Ponzi's in 2020 and 2021. But running a retail-facing business, FTX, joined at the hip of a retail-fleecing investment vehicle, Alameda, reeked to me. Two, too many people may have given Sam a pass because they thought he was a savvy trading savant, and he was also helping many of them get rich. I'm also sure a number of skeptics believed it would be dangerous professionally to rock the boat in calling him out. Both were reasonable thoughts. I've never seen anyone in crypto develop such a powerful network of friends at such a breakneck pace. Across politics, legacy finance, and crypto, Sam seemed to be operating at a different level from mere mortals. He was a formidable mercenary, and he even said the quiet part out loud. His ends justified his means. 3. Sam had explicitly stated in the past that he didn't care about crypto, but for the fact that it was a market to be exploited. The shoelaces, the hair, the cargo shorts, etc. reminded me of Boris Johnson's act, he was going for the weird but lovable wonderkind of crypto. The billboards were the jump-the-shark moment when I was personally 99% sure something wasn't right with FTX. FTX's seemingly limitless resources just didn't add up, and whenever I met an investor after 3AC's collapse in Q2 and Sam's multiple bailout bids for 3AC counterparties like BlockFi and Voyager and a pitch to invest billions of dollars into Twitter, I asked the same question. How is this mathematically possible for Sam to have made this much money this quickly and gotten liquidity on so much of it? I began to quip in recent months, including on stage at Mainnet, that I was an effective altruist. After all, I also wanted to accumulate enough money and power to bend the world to my iron will. FTX was expanding at a torrid pace, and Sam had a lot of smart money bankers and mutual friends who were betting on him and putting their reputations behind the company. Given Masari's mission to drive data standards and transparency in crypto, it was important to work with market leaders like FTX. In fact, I believe we are the only company in crypto to count every single major U.S. exchange and custodian as investors. That's intentional. And I actively worked to get closer to Sam and FTX these past two years to ensure they weren't a glaring omission from our investor network. That didn't mean my spidey senses weren't tingling. But worst case scenario, I thought it would be a keep your enemies closer type situation. We took on Alameda for less than 1% stake in Masari's 2021 Series A and FTX Ventures for less than 1% stake in our Series B. We intend to buy back both investments. I didn't re-engage Alameda over the summer for our Series B, but I did want to work with an investor that FTX Ventures had recently brought on from another major venture capital firm. I viewed her hiring as a sign that FTX investing apparatus was maturing, and we signed them up. As they say, yikes, dumb fucking take. We announced our Series B in the new syndicate of investors, including FTX, the morning of September 21st at our mainnet summit in New York. 
That evening, Masari hosted a dinner with many of the policy leaders who were in town speaking at the event and fighting the good fight for all of us in D.C. We didn't even get to the damn monkfish before the Blockchain Association's executive director dropped a bomb. Can we talk about the elephant in the room, she said. Sam is selling out the industry to get a monopoly for FTX. The rest of the dinner was pretty buzzy. I had invited a room of seasoned pros, and it was the first time that many of them became aware of just how far along the DCCPA had gotten in D.C., in large part because of FTX's aggressive lobbying. Behind closed doors, the legislation was moving at Mach 1. I'm concerned. After digesting the monkfish and wrapping up Mainnet, I emailed Sam and his policy team on the train ride home that Friday. Two days after we had announced their participation in our round, I wrote, I'm concerned with what I've heard about the bills FTX is supporting and would love to understand, if not align, on strategy. A lack of communication and coordination in D.C. will kill us as an industry, and I want to be sure Masari's customers users aren't collateral damage of bad policy I spoke with his team that Monday. I can only surmise that Sam's initial reaction to my email was, why is this guy emailing me and what does he have to do with policy in D.C.? By the way, it's a fair question as to what I have to do with policy in D.C., The dinner during Mainnet made me realize that every single Masari customer would be impacted by the rules being written by those in Washington, and I needed to gain a clear line of sight, quickly. But after my discussion with his policy team, Sam had clearly gathered that a number of people, including me, had issues with the DCCPA's DeFi language and were planning to either fix or fight the bill. He knew I was one of the louder business voices in crypto who was now in the know, so we scheduled a follow-up a few days later that Sam could join. Mainnet 2023. Get your tickets now to secure the early bird price of $699. September 20th through the 22nd, 2023, Pier 36, New York, New York. We debated DCCPA for almost two hours. I did not mince words. FTX is viewed by other crypto lobbyists as a rogue actor looking to create a regulatory monopoly for itself to the detriment of the rest of the crypto industry. We spent a good percentage of the call walking through Sam's views on the political chessboard, and he made his case that the most viable path forward for the broader industry was the one that FTX was spending considerable political and financial capital on advancing. It was clear he wasn't going to stop pushing the bill. I think it was also clear to him that I was going to help resist it unless its problematic DeFi language was fixed. I thought the language being used would be horrible for our industry and our customers the vast majority of which didn't have any idea how far along the DCCPA was progressing. Towards the end of that conversation, Sam was getting visibly frustrated that he hadn't converted me. In a shocking moment that felt very much like I was being bribed, he said, I probably shouldn't say this, but just as a hypothetical, I don't think this bill is bad for DeFi. I don't think I'm wrong on this, but if I am wrong, and anyone in DeFi that supports DCCPA gets hurt, I'm willing to spend a significant sum of money making things right with them. This wasn't a one-on-one either. His team was on the call. I was floored. I told him I wouldn't engage in hypotheticals and instead wanted FTX to help fix the crippling and unworkable DeFi language. I wrapped up the call and gave Sam and his colleagues several names of DeFi policy leaders to sync with who would share their specific concerns. I wanted Sam to help advance their concerns in FTX's follow-ups with Senate staff. I did not feel great after this call. But the fact remained that Sam had spent tens of millions of dollars on a DC charm offensive and would have to be handled carefully so as to not blow up relationships with the policymakers in his orbit who believed were working in good faith on important and admittedly high potential legislation.
Better to leverage FTX's progress and tweak legislation with good momentum than to air concerns in public, make the industry look like amateurs, and lose critical staffer relationships. The calculation was simple. Co-opt FTX's influence in order to fix the bad DeFi language. As I tweeted numerous times, it would essentially boil down to no DeFi, no deal. I hadn't had any direct conversations with policymakers or their staffs at this point. Masari doesn't retain any lobbyists aside from being a member of the Blockchain Association with 100-plus other companies. And frankly, DCCPA wouldn't even impact us directly, so there wouldn't have been much for us to offer in the DCCPA negotiations. That said, I thought DCCPA needed to be improved for the long-term health of crypto and tried to play a small role in helping keep people talking. If we could get the right lawyers in the room to engage on potential red lines that would protect emerging parts of the industry, we could see how the final drafts were trending and then make decisions on whether a coordinated and loud rejection of DCCPA was warranted. Masari counts big exchanges and DeFi projects alike as customers. Frankly, in today's world, they can't exist without each other. And we'd already convened a couple of previous policy meetups. That's how we ended up curating a small group of people for a follow-up meeting in D.C. to discuss the DCCPA's working drafts, weigh the pros and cons it presented to the various industry groups, and most importantly, loop in the FTX team so they weren't viewed as working in direct opposition to other crypto companies and trade groups. The D.C. meeting itself was private. The discussion was private. And it would have stayed that way had someone not leaked details to the press. Since it's now part of public record, I'll share that Sam pled his case to the broader group at this meeting and predictably extolled the merits of the DCCPA, echoing many of the points his team had shared with me previously. His message, and particularly his exit, was not well received. After Sam made his case, he excused himself from a table of 20 public policy experts with decades of experience in crafting financial regulations, gathered his entourage, and said over his shoulder, I just want to say I really appreciate your efforts here. Thank you for being super fucking constructive. Nothing like a good old pat on the head from the boy genius who's actively trying to sell you out. The leak, the Voorhees debate, and the Alameda balance sheet. By the time the meeting in D.C. wrapped up, I'd spent the better part of a month with near full-time focus on policy efforts and the DCCPA. I wanted to get back to, you know, real work. But more than one trade association predicted that the DeFi crippling language and the full legislation could get slammed through Congress during the lame duck between Election Day in November and the new Congress taking office in January, and that probability was rising. A number of investors were starting to grumble more publicly about Sam's lobbying efforts. Credit to Richard Chen and Vance Spencer for being early. I tweeted about my redline issues for DCCPA and wrote to a friend, I'm not going to pile on or come to Sam's defense but it's good to have a little public pressure on him. FTX could up being hugely positive in this saga or the villain, and the line is thin. Still, it was premature for Twitter dunks since it appeared that the DCCPA was salvageable and the jury was out on whether FTX would help push for changes to the problematic DeFi language. I also worried that a public crypto Twitter-led free-for-all would torpedo relationships that many of the trade groups and policy advisors had worked so hard to build in the years since. As a card-carrying OG member of crypto Twitter in all its degenerate glory, I can still acknowledge that crafting, building buy-in for, and passing bipartisan legislation through both houses of Congress is a high-wire act in which the Bird app generally does not help. The DCCPA red lines appear to be getting worse, not better, though. 
One curious change to the early drafts included clarifying language around DeFi's decentralized exchanges that would have de, de facto illegalized automated market maker DEXs like Uniswap, but explicitly blessed central limit order book DEXs like Serum. You'd never have guessed who had $2 billion of Serum tokens on their balance sheet. Okay, okay, it's FTX. It didn't take much longer for all hell to break loose when a leaked version of the DWCPA redline got posted on October 19th. That's when it seemed like Sam started to crack. After that, Sam simply could not stop talking about policy. While Congress was in recess, two weeks before an election when staffers would find out whether or not they still had jobs, when pencils were down for a moment to regroup. From then on, Sam watched his one-time adoring Twitter following begin to turn on him. During periods of high stress, one of his former colleagues told me Sam would turn to Twitter for reassurance that his messaging and decision-making were still on point. But he was starting to flounder, and those dopamine hits dropped off a cliff. Sam put out a public thread on his proposed policy framework, panned. He debated Eric Voorhees, lost. He also threatened to work to get some of the biggest DCCPA opponents fired. Then he and his team mocked Binance CPO, Shengpeng Zhao, or CZ. As Omar says, you come at the king, you best not miss. Sam missed, bigly. Mere days later, Coindesk broke the news that Alameda's solvency rested on the value of its own illiquid token balance sheet. CZ announced he would dump his substantial FTT stake and part ways with Sam, in a large part for lobbying against Binance and other crypto firms. Within 48 hours, the game was up for FTX, Alameda, and Sam himself. You can read about the ensuing drama literally anywhere else right now, so I'll save the space. But I end with two things. First, the DCCPA is now considered a tainted bill, fairly or unfairly. FTX's influence on the legislation is hard to deny, and it begs the question whether DCCPA would have caught or simply exacerbated the damage of FTX's apparent fraud. Some kernels of the bill may yet survive and make it into an evolved bill in the new Congress, but I doubt the current name or contents live on without material changes. Second, there needs to be justice for Sam's crimes. It's not about retribution. As the indictments roll out, they look so damning that my hunch is Sam has simply been positioning himself to cop a negligence case and minimize the damage. But that would be a failure of justice. My first-hand experience and that of dozens of other smart people who were snookered by Sam was with a hyper-competent Machiavellian. His full forthcoming prosecution in the U.S. is a sign of the integrity of our justice system and a deterrent to similar egregious future financial crime. Most importantly, it will prevent Sam from doing something like this again. This saga has been terrible for crypto, but it's been even worse in terms of the human cost. Life savings lost, investors spooked, employees gutted. Sam's self-serving actions have had brutal consequences, and the consequences should be proportionate. I hope Sam Bankman-Fried spends decades in prison, where he belongs. Section 4.2. How a bill becomes a law. At this point, you might be thinking, why were all of these meetings happening in private? Seems like the classic smoke-filled room I've heard about in every political thriller, and it stinks. Crypto policy shouldn't be happening behind closed doors. On that, I would have to agree, but I'm not sure we would like the results. Folks within the crypto industry generally have three options when it comes to engaging with policymakers. One, spend a fortune on in-house and external advisors, legal, comms and lobbyists, and plan to spend a lot of time in person meeting with regulators, staffers, and members. Two, 
apply to join one of the major trade associations like the Crypto Council for Innovation or the Blockchain Association. This will also cost you six figures at least. In Washington, the overlap between good app policy and Grox crypto is small. If you're a decent crypto lawyer, but you rage quit group discussions like a five-year-old, you won't be very effective at policymaking. Three, send mean tweets and rile up the base. A lot of people underestimate this. I don't. Twitter can be an effective antidote to bad bills, but crypto Twitter is rarely a drone strike with little penetration into DC Twitter and often a suicide vest. You can't write laws via Twitter, but you can give policymakers, electeds in DC parlance, a valuable temperature check on what their constituents actually care about. We saw this last year with the infrastructure bill debate. My personal policy strategy can be boiled down to protect consumers and do no harm. Masari is not a company in Washington's regulatory crosshairs, but we invest in policy because good outcomes will help all of our customers. For transparency, here's where we land. Approximately $1 million per year in crypto advocacy. These costs are direct, in-house resources, indirect, dues for Blockchain Association, Coin Center, and contributions to GMI Pact, and in-kind, investments of company time. We don't invest in tokens like most highly engaged big funds, A16Z and Paradigm. We don't manage customer funds or facilitate crypto money flows like big crypto financial players, Circle, Coinbase, FTX, Kraken. And we aren't fighting for the right to exist like the personal wallet providers, Ledger, or ZK Privacy Technologists, Zcash. But we invest anyway because good policy outcomes will help all of our customers and elevate the broader industry. Yes, I also send the occasional mean tweet when I think it can be effective in helping form a narrative around an enemy. And at the risk of sounding immodest, those have been effective. My crazy tweets from last summer about the sitting SEC chair are now leads in the Wall Street Journal's op-ed section, and influential sitting members of Congress seem to be forking specific attack lines I've used in the past. Policy inception via mean tweet? Sort of. But again, Twitter only goes so far. For as much progress as we made last summer in raising hell over the infrastructure bill's problematic broker definitions, that language was signed into law without a single change. In other words, we lost. To win in D.C., you have to play the D.C. game. We'll be fighting the constitutionality of certain laws for years to come. We'll be duking it out with overreaching regulators until we have a new administration in the White House. Sorry, but that's all defensive strategy. A high-octane offense can deliver results where it matters, in elections, positive legislation, and regulatory carve-outs. FTX actually had a good offensive playbook, but it was selfishly designed to hide its principal's operational corruption. To understand the process behind lawmaking, let's run through a fictional example. Below I've replaced real players with code names and shuffled around just enough details to avoid blowing up specific lobbyists, staffers, or members of Congress. It's a cleaner and more entertaining analysis, and this is the closest I'll get to Margot Robbie in a bubble bath explaining the subprime crisis. I hope this helps convey how a political process that can be maddening at times does in fact work in a democratic nation with 330 million people, and I hope it helps illustrate how some crypto proponents may end up willing to make some tough concessions in order to ward off much worse and existentially bad attacks from our political enemies in the new year. Let's dive in. 1. A hypothetical conversation in D.C. in 2021 after the infrastructure bill. Senator Bob. This crypto thing is getting pretty big. I didn't realize how many people cared about this stuff. 
I thought it was just a bunch of gambling degenerates, but we've actually heard from a bunch of voters and startups about the things they are building, and some of the concerns seem justified. Our regulated exchanges aren't getting the clarity they need and losing market share to offshore entities or killing earlier stage companies with legal costs. And it's important that we separate software from custodial financial services. Senator Karen, crypto is full of shadowy supercoders whose mission is to undermine law enforcement, evade taxes, gamble with customer funds, and destroy the U.S. dollar. They also want to destroy the environment as crypto's payment processing, i.e. mining, burns enough coal to power a Scandinavian country. Burn it all down or give regulators the authority to crack down. Remember, this is our starting point for the debate. It's crypto's Overton window, and it will inform everything that happens next. 2. Over the next few months, Senator Alice, a friend and political ally of Senator Karen, meets with Senator Bob. Senator Alice says, Karen has some good points on crypto, and I agree with her on most things politically. Bob, I disagree with you often, but it also seems like you agree that these crypto exchanges need clear oversight and that pushing the problems offshore isn't necessarily protecting Americans just creating more black box risk for us internationally. Is there something for us to work on together here? Oh, and by the way, I met this charming young man who doesn't seem like the other crypto zealots at the Save the Whale Gala. His name is Flash, and his team wants to meet to discuss some issues they're tackling and help us think through potential solutions. 3. Wouldn't you know it, Senator Alice and Bob, and just as importantly their staffers, realize there is bipartisan support and common ground for a bill that would solve the country's crypto exchange oversight issue. But in order for a bill to become a law, it has to A, get drafted, including red lines, B, get marked up in committee and pass out of committee to make it to the floor, C, secure 60 out of 100 votes in the Senate to break a procedural block, the filibuster, D, secure majority support in both the House and the Senate, and E, get signed into law by the president. Because there is no point in spending time and energy on bills that have no change at steps C, D, and E, the majority of time spent crafting legislation is in steps A and B. The members and their staffs share the same goal. Draft something bulletproof that can make it out of committee and then pass via a broader vote. As such, this is where closed-door concessions get made that are necessary to win support later in the process. 4. Alice and Bob sit on one of the same Senate committees, which is responsible for overseeing the Alice and Bob Commission, ABC, one of the two major financial market regulators. Senator Karen sits on the committee that oversees the other major financial regulator, the Safety and Truth Department, STD. Senator Alice says, I love Karen, but we're never going to get anything done if we need to work with her on this. Let's draft this in a way that avoids STD's involvement. Then we won't have to refer this to her committee. One of Flash's team members was at the ABC previously, and they have some ideas for how we can avoid the STD. 5. Because Senator Alice sits in the majority party, she is the chair of the committee that oversees ABC. Senator Bob is the ranking member of the minority party. Both are important. One of Alice's staffers, a lawyer named Linda, holds the pen on the draft. Linda has lots of experience, so she knows how to expertly navigate three big challenges. Secure buy-in from the bill's co-sponsors. She's working hard to get a bill drafted that protects investors from fraud and abuse, Alice's top priority, without stifling innovation or hurting the U.S. competitive positioning in an emerging financial market, Bob's top priority. There are two other co-sponsors, Xavier and Yan, who will have secondary input as sanity checks. 
If all the sponsors are happy, things are in good shape. Figure out who to trust within the crypto industry. This is not a trivial undertaking as crypto is an ever-evolving landscape and most of its players are new. Market leaders have a history of collapsing, going to jail, or getting embroiled in litigation with major regulators. You need industry at the table to get the technical details right and win Bob's support, but you also need to ensure industry doesn't love your bill, or both Alice and Bob will be viewed as far too lenient. Keep the bill sufficiently narrow to avoid procedural objections from Senator Charlie, who sits on both financial regulatory committees and is generally an ally of Senator Karen. Charlie will be a good signal for what can get out of Alice and Bob's committees without veering into Karen's jurisdiction. Linda needs to throw him some bones for this to have a viable shot at getting passed. As you may have gathered, Linda is pretty important. Linda is pretty important. She is also a single human being with finite time and capacity for feedback. In the same way that you shouldn't write software with 100 people, but 100 people should review it. You shouldn't craft legislation with 100 people, but 100 people should review it. Early on in the drafting process, Flash and his team have enormous impact as they've been at the table from the jump, and some of them, like Linda, understand the ABC well because they actually worked there. This will come as a surprise to some, but rare Pepe 420 will not have the same impact as Linda's former ABC colleagues. 6. The bill has a name. The Alice and Bob Commission Promotion Act, or ABCPA. Once bills have names and people start to say those names out loud in D.C., they start to get taken a bit more seriously. By early fall, ABCPA is red hot in part because Flash and his team are on billboards partying with Tom Brady, Giselle, and former Epstein Island resident presidents. Flash is making it rain PAC spending and meeting the House and Senate leadership to convince them to append the ABCPA to one of the must-pass bills Congress has to consider during the lame duck. Oh, and by the way, don't forget he's going to give a billion dollars to re-elect President Biden and the rest to save the whales. What a mensch. Flash isn't like those other dirty crypto subversives. This guy gets it. He wants to be regulated and protect consumers, and he understands that we can't just pass a bill that oversees centralized exchanges. We need to get this DeFi thing under control as well. 7. See previous section. 8. Well, that was a nightmare, thinks Linda. Maybe Karen is right, thinks Alice. I just want to go back to my farm and never hear about crypto again, thinks Bob. <laughs> thinks Karen, evilly. And just like that, the probability of a 2022 ABCPA drops to near zero, and the 2023 policy discussions are re-decentralized, potentially even off the table. Even if Alice and Bob can get ABCPA out of committee and through the Senate next year, Karen's perfect political foil, Congressman Patty O'Shea, now chairs the House committee that oversees the STD. O'Shea is part of the changing of the guard from the November election. Nothing changes in the Senate leadership, but everything changes in the House, and the new House leaders have a thing or two to say about the STD and want to prevent its overreach from spreading. Crypto's legislative options now boil down to a proxy war over how authority is split between the ABC and the STD. With Flash out of the picture, a dozen other industry leaders with more nuanced, technical, and balanced views around what constitutes positive legislation have entered the chat, and their stock with members and staff has risen considerably. You might not like how the sausage gets made or agree with every policy emissary the crypto industry has representing the movement in D.C., but I will tell you one thing definitely. 
Flash's demise is good for crypto's long-term health. Here's what happens next. Section 4.3, the SEC versus the CFTC proxy war. The Senate Banking Committee, controlled by crypto adversaries, and the House Financial Services Committee, now controlled by more open-minded crypto proponents, oversee the Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, whose chair, Gary Gensler, is more or less crypto's public enemy number one in D.C., not winning Dem or GOP friends either. I'll get into how maddeningly ineffective he's been as a regulator in the next section, but for now, know that Gensler wants oversight of the big crypto exchanges as he believes that just about every asset not named Bitcoin is an unregistered security. The Senate Agriculture Committee and House Agriculture Committee oversee the Commodity and Futures Trading Commission, or CFTC. Senate Ag, sponsored bipartisan crypto legislation that would have given the CFTC primary jurisdiction over the crypto spot exchanges. House Ag, like House Financial Services, is now controlled by more open-minded crypto proponents. When we're thinking about legislation and oversight of the crypto spot markets, the CFTC seems to be the more appropriate regulator of most crypto spot markets today. The majority of crypto market cap and volumes center around Bitcoin and other true cryptocurrencies, UGG, Doge, and truly decentralized layer one platforms like Ethereum and Cardano, Polkadot, Solana, Avalanche, Cosmos, etc. that don't pass most people's sniff test when it comes to looking and acting like investment contracts or securities, an overreaching SEC may disagree. Masari Asset Intelligence, Unbiased Perspective on Crypto Assets understand the full history, structure, and features of any asset or protocol. To learn more, visit masari.io backslash asset dash intelligence. As a result, legislation that puts the CFTC in the driver's seat in the oversight of exchanges and custodians like Anchorage, Coinbase, Gemini, Kraken, and others seems to make sense. The CFTC is no slouch as a regulator, as we'll see below, but at least they aren't openly hostile to crypto's existence and exchange compliance would seem possible under their oversight. SEC oversight, on the other hand, would likely prove impossible as exchanges wouldn't be able to list assets like ETH until they were either issued no-action letters as non-securities or registered with the SEC. How does a decentralized Layer 1 protocol and its community produce centralized financial reports and disclosures, you might ask? Well, I think you have your answer for how unworkable SEC authority is to the future of crypto in America. The Crypto Council for Innovations, CCI, CEO Sheila Warren lays out the most likely path forward by drawing on some history, saying, Where does policy go from here? Dodd-Frank gives some insight. At the center of the 2008 collapse were exotic and largely unregulated financial products called derivatives. Credit default swaps, CDs, were sold on billions of dollars of securities backed by shaky mortgages, MBs. Think of CDs as insurance on default risk. In the 1990s, derivatives were seen as an exciting financial innovation that could unbundle risks, and Washington decided the economy would benefit from as little regulation as possible. Fed Reserve Board Chairman Alan Greenspan in 1999 saying, By far the most significant event in finance during the past decade has been the extraordinary development and expansion of financial derivatives. When I worked on Wall Street as a lawyer in the early 2000s, CDs were gaining popularity among many financial firms and had moved well beyond super elite traders. In fact, several cutting-edge financial firms were exploring other similar products. In 2008, Mortgages began to default rapidly, and suddenly everyone who sold those MB's derivative products, CDs, owed a lot of money. 
causing a global economic meltdown and revealing just how interconnected financial institutions were. The contagion was shocking and severe. Title VII of the Dodd-Frank Act subjects all derivatives to substantive regulatory oversight. Swaps are regulated by the CFTC and security-based swaps by the SEC. Two years after enactment, the agencies issued a joint rulemaking defining these terms. So these things can take years. Fast forward to crypto post-FTX collapse. Reactive, panicky policies are not the solution. Now is the time for thoughtful, careful discussion with lawmakers and stakeholders to ensure the U.S. crypto regulatory framework promotes safety and soundness, protects consumers, preserves our innovative edge, and prevents bad actors. The best case scenario in 2023 is one in which the CFTC regulates the custodial exchanges, digital commodities like Bitcoin and ETH, and carves out DeFi for now. Stablecoin issuers face new oversight requirements that outline the rules they will need to follow in order to fully integrate with the legacy financial system. And then, and only then, we can have a discussion around the SEC's role in overseeing bona fide crypto securities. Ideas like SEC Commissioner Hester Pierce's safe harbor provide a glimpse at how the commission could deal with the gray area in between. As Ledger's Seth Hurtling pointed out, the DCCPA never solved the threshold, what is it problem? Security, commodity, other. In fact, it may make things worse by creating a new bucket, digital commodity, giving the CFTC primary authority, but then giving the SEC veto power over the CFTC decisions. That won't go well. Those definitions will be tricky but critical. Common sense might yet prevail, but we've got a couple of big, powerful mob bosses that stand in the way of a short-term resolution. Section 4.4. Markets and Crypto to Assets, Pros and Cons. It pains me, but we have to talk about Europe and their mixed bag of policy tricks, markets and crypto to assets, MICA, and the transfer funds regulation, TFR, since they are now law of the land across the EU and will go into effect by 2024. These two bills form the backbone of three years' worth of discussion regarding a comprehensive regulatory framework for crypto. Some of it is terrible and should be avoided at all costs in freedom-loving countries, and some of it borders on passable, if not positive. Let's start with the good news. There's clarity from a big economic block in terms of their treatment of crypto in the years ahead, and they think this is a step forward in consumer protection and market integrity. They focus on centralized crypto asset service providers, CASPs, and asset issuers and focus on rules that would protect against market abuses. They kick DeFi regulations down the road until after the sector has been properly studied. They require CASPs to have a real presence and management in the EU, hold them liable for damages or losses caused because of hacks or operational failures, and mandate that clients' assets are segregated in case of bankruptcy. Asset issuers are responsible for certain minimum disclosures, and for assets without any issues, Bitcoin, ETH, exchanges will have to provide a white paper and other basic information if they want to list them, in which they could end up liable for mistakes. Their early returns on their DeFi study are encouraging. They want to regulate legal entities versus protocols, introduce a voluntary framework for DeFi supervision, establish something called embedded supervision, on-chain monitoring, and oversee oracles. They didn't ban Bitcoin thanks to its energy intensiveness, as some radicals had initially proposed, though they do have some maddening ESG reporting provisions in MICA and they provide a path to a digital euro stablecoin that isn't necessarily a central bank digital currency. That's a loaded section of regulation. They cap issuance for asset reference tokens, ARTS, 
and non-euro e-money tokens, EMTs. NFTs are excluded for now, except if they have a function that would make them some sort of financial instrument. ApeCoin versus Bored Apes comes to mind. More later. As for the problem areas, TFR is one of the strictest implementations of the Financial Action Task Force's travel rule anywhere in the world. It introduces detailed AML requirements for CASPs, including transactions that touch personal wallets. It doesn't ban peer-to-peer transfers or personal wallets outright. In fact, they've gone from referring to them as unhosted to self-hosted, little victories. But it is invasive. There are no exemptions or minimums to TFR for transfers between CASPs, more onerous than banks, and CASPs must apply risk-based AML measures and verification if transfers to a given wallet exceed 1,000 euros. I know it doesn't sound too good, but for a long time, it looked way worse. For most transfers to and from wallets, there won't be a mandatory verification. Hence, this key demand, unhosted wallet verification, from the EU Parliament was quite weakened. Algorithmic stablecoins are essentially banned. It's not just about the Luna disaster. Remember, this regulatory framework was originally urgently proposed and conceived after governments worldwide began to hyperventilate about the potential of the supranational Libra currency out of Facebook. They included a requirement to write regulatory technical standards to establish minimum sustainability standards for consensus mechanisms, which could end up being a backdoor way to ban proof-of-work mining, if not Bitcoin itself. Crypto lending is not covered, but it will be reviewed later. I suppose that is a positive given it's not a restriction, but given that a crypto crisis got us into this year's mess, it seems like an omission. Much like we have legislation and rulemaking in the U.S., MICA and TFR can be thought of as a permanent legislation passed by three political trilogues, the Commission, Council, and Parliament, which has some similarities to the House versus Senate in the U.S. that will now be put into effect by technical trilogues. A key difference in the EU is that the industry's input into the final technical text, i.e. the letter of the regulations, will be much more limited than in rulemaking with U.S. regulators. Bureaucrats know best and will take it from here. Passage of MICA and TFR is now all but a formality in early 2023. After that, the stablecoin regulations will go into effect 12 months later, and other MICA and TFR provisions 18 months later with periodic reviews and reassessments of the policy baked into the framework. Ave's Rebecca Reddig has broken all of this down in a couple interviews, including this one with The Economist, and Circle's Patrick Hansen has been a veritable fountain of valuable context and nitty-gritty updates on Twitter. Consider much of this section stolen from those two primary sources on the ground, plus Ledger's Seth Hurtline, My Spirit Animal, and Fighting for Privacy and Personal Wallets. Their work and other policy leaders' work is only getting started going into 2023 in Europe. With any luck, they'll also be able to point to the temperance in the EU's DeFi study language to carve that language out from bills like the DWCPA. It would be nice to get DeFi-less exchange and stablecoin legislation passed in the new U.S. Congress, even if asking for utility tokens to earn designation as a new type of asset is too much to hope for. Section 4.5. Everybody Hates Gary. It's the new hit sitcom on TV. Oh wait, the SEC killed them. It turns out SEC reporting requirements for a consumer token is impossibly restrictive. Props token status as qualified securities significantly limits our ability to respond to changing market conditions in a commercially feasible manner. We must make public filings and often get prior regulatory approval for product changes. 
As a result, we are unable to follow anything remotely like proper product development of launch, measure, iterate, and struggle to launch new key functionalities we develop like staking or per app tokens. The first thing you need to know about Chair Gary Gensler's SEC is that they have never met a company they didn't want to sue, except apparently FTX. They're suing Ripple over XRP status as an unregistered security, and it now looks more likely that they will win the case in 2023 given new evidence and the precedent set in the LBRY case. They snuck a side door unregistered securities claim into an insider trading at Coinbase that the company itself had investigated and referred to authorities. At least Grayscale is suing the SEC over their arbitrary and capricious rejection of the GBTC ETF conversion application. Though to be fair, the SEC went after Grayscale first, forcing a 2016 settlement that oh so ironically created the GBTC redemption problem in the first place. And now they're back at it harassing Grayscale over Zcash. Hammer. Nail. The second thing that you need to know is that this SEC missed most of the major problems that were going on right under their noses. They never seemed to investigate FINRA-registered broker-dealers for their reckless institutional lending practices. They allowed GBTC to float in the public markets with no redemption mechanism, which led to massive harm to retail investors and a toxic collateral asset that sparked contagion, as discussed last chapter. To rub salt in the open wound, they seemed to have cozied up to FTX and purportedly considered a no-action letter for its affiliated IEX Securities Exchange, while seeming to ignore the well-documented evidence that FTX's core business relied on a related market-making and prop-trading shop, a model that doesn't usually fly unless you're a deep-pocketed political ally. One reason to root for legislation to pass that empowers the CFTC is because the status quo under Gensler is untenable. Without a clear legislative guidance as to where the SEC's authority begins and ends within crypto, the industry will continue to fight a trench war for years with this SEC and its current leadership. We'll lose the war of attrition, and even if we survive, we'll be badly bloodied as a result. It's the primary reason most crypto policy people are willing to make some tough concessions on bills like the DCCPA. A complete absence of legislation will leave crypto's fate in the hands of administrative courts, delay adoption, rack up legal bills, and throw default oversight advantage to one of the world's most openly hostile crypto regulators. Section 4.6. Uki versus the CFTC. Dow Governance. Given how aggressive Gensler's SEC has been with the crypto industry, it's natural to expect many people to begin longing for oversight from a different, more open-minded regulator. There is a lot riding on the CFTC versus SEC question, but it's important to note that the CFTC is hardly a slouch when it comes to regulatory teeth. Determining crypto's most fitting regulatory framework needs to be future-proof, not a mere attempt at jurisdiction shopping due to a single adversarial regulator who happens to hold his appointment at a single point in time. Remember, it was none other than CFTC Chair Gary Gensler who was ultimately responsible for implementing key provisions of the Dodd-Frank Act in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. Gensler served in the role from 2009 to 2014, and even back then was considered to be a ruthless taskmaster. The last truly major rulemaking the CFTC did, 68 New Rules, was under Gensler's watch as the CFTC sought to bring oversight to the over-the-counter derivatives market and expanded from the $35 trillion futures market to the $400 trillion swaps market. It matters what authority is bestowed on a regulator by law, not who the person in charge at the moment happens to be. 
because all regulators will ultimately face the temptation to regulate via enforcement. Look no further than the Uki Dow case, which CFTC Chair Rostin Benham argued was so egregious and so obvious that they had no choice but to pursue it. We'll touch on the specifics later, but suffice it to say that it is the CFTC's actions that appear egregious in the Ukidao case. A centralized trading and margin lending protocol called BZX ran what the CFTC deemed to be an illegal and unregistered operation. To skirt the laws, the BZX founders kicked its product into a token-governed DAO called Uki, which had a limited number of key stakeholders, including the BZX founders, who made decisions on behalf of the protocol via token voting. Because it would have been hard for the CFTC to track down and pin liability on every single participating token holder, they chose an easier route, a sweeping enforcement action that would hold the entire DAO liable and imbue the regulator with new authority thanks to the precedent set by a default win in court. The man at the helm of the CFTC, Chair Benham, strikes many as a more reasonable regulator. I like him personally, but that's not the point. Laws permanent and subject to misinterpretation and abuse if not carefully, narrowly crafted. Required reading, Ukidao versus the CFTC. Section 4.7, Tornado Cash versus OFAC, Personal Wallets. Privacy is normal. That's one of the most controversial things you can say in the West right now when it comes to financial surveillance, but it's a rallying cry worth fighting for. Indeed, I've been encouraged at how many crypto leaders have stepped up to the plate to aggressively defend privacy. Coin Center's challenge to the 6050i reporting provisions included in last year's infrastructure bill was the legalese around Naraj's all-time banger of a tweet, where he said, I'm sorry that your warrantless surveillance regime was built on the assumption that people would always need intermediaries to transact. They've also been at the forefront in defending privacy-preserving technology in response to the Treasury's unprecedented and unconstitutional decision to sanction Tornado Cash. We touched on the situation briefly in the People to Watch chapter, and I'd encourage you to read Coin Center's analysis in full, as it's important. But in brief, the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, placed Tornado Cash, the protocol, on its specially designated Nationals and Block Persons, SDN, list. The SDN list is a sanctions list that typically covers individuals and companies who can petition for the removal. In the case of Tornado Cash, not only were the Tornado Cash entity and related persons sanctioned, but several Ethereum addresses for the TC smart contract were also included. These contracts can't be modified once deployed, and as bits of permanent computer code cannot defend themselves or petition for their SDN removal. Coin Center pointed out that the other divisions of the Treasury, FinCEN, had in the past noted this common sense distinction themselves. U.S.-based Tornado Cash users are now banned from interacting with the Tornado Cash protocol, which includes sending and withdrawing funds from the application. That goes against the Fifth Amendment protections around due process. Coin Center isn't alone on this. The DeFi Education Fund immediately filed a Freedom of Information Act request around the Treasury's Tornado Cash OFAC deliberations. Coinbase and Hawn Ventures filed amicus briefs in the case as well. It's refreshing to see the solidarity, especially since this battle is as much about pushback over the chilling effect regulatory overreach will have on an innovation. OFAC violations are not a slap on the wrist sort of crimes, as it is about the right to private transactions. We simply must win this one. Section 4.8. Protecting Crypto Banking. Senator Warren will likely hate crypto until her dying breath. She doesn't like people. She doesn't like the audacity of speech and software that sits outside of the vice grip of the state, 
and she certainly doesn't like that crypto companies have access to U.S. banking. In a recent letter to Silvergate, Senator Warren questioned why a well-regulated bank, one that counted FTX's 10% of its deposits and included a glowing customer testimonial, had missed evidence of massive financial fraud. That seems reasonable, if annoying, and it was a bipartisan letter. But the fact that a bank was unable to detect fraud between related entity accounts of a depositor is not surprising, especially given A, the known volatility of that depositor's end market this year, B, the nature of the depositor's business in market making and exchange, and C, the fact that Silvergate could only ever see a tiny fraction of the full FTX balance sheet, which was predominantly denominated in crypto, as you'd expect a crypto exchange's balance sheet to be. A cursory study of Silvergate and its financial filings show that concern over its solvency is overblown. If anything, the Warren witch hunt could spark stress and withdrawals that wouldn't have happened otherwise. I wouldn't be surprised if the FTX bankruptcy, subsequent contagion, and perception is reality FUD have the bank's deposits quarter over quarter. Maybe worse. But what would happen if Silvergate deposits, substantially all of which are derived from our digital asset customer base, decreased from $12 billion in Q3 to $6 billion by end of year? Not much, actually. Their leverage ratios were nearly 10x higher than the minimum regulatory requirements at the end of Q3. Silvergate has run a clever business become a port in a storm for crypto depositors and use that liquid capital to fuel a boring, plain vanilla commercial bank. They held $8.5 billion in marketable securities, 70% of its demand deposits at the end of Q3. And the rest of the loan book is mostly exposed to floating rate loans, limited interest rate change exposure. I'm not sure they would be A-OK with a 90% drawdown in customer deposits. Would any bank? But as long as Silvergate CEO Alan Lane gets together with his other big customers and convinces them that assets are safe, they should be able to weather the storm. Those same customers don't want Silvergate going under either. Live together or die alone. Of course, Senator Warren doesn't want to stop at simply investigating Silvergate. She wants banks to stop servicing crypto companies. It's a full-on witch hunt, and her letter to the Federal Reserve, FDIC, and OCC exposes her real intent to ban banking to crypto companies. The Silvergate letter was allegedly written in response to a push from a well-known short seller who had been aggressively hitting D.C. with his anti-Silvergate pitch and found a pliant audience in the ulterior-motivated Warren. The senator even went so far as to misquote a Washington Post article in her letters to regulators, falsely writing that Silvergate's deposit quarter to date are down $9.8 billion versus the original Washington Post text that average deposits quarter to date were down to $9.8 billion. That's a very convenient typo that is otherwise a material misstatement of fact regarding a public company, one that could trigger a bank run at one of Senator Warren's chief political targets, crypto-friendly banks. I would love to tell you that Senator Warren is the only problem when it comes to crypto's access to banking, but the Fed has been playing favorites and breaking its own rules too. Caitlin Long's Custodia Bank is suing the Fed over its inaction on her company's application for a FedMaster account, while the Fed flippantly approved BNY Mellon's similar crypto custody service in October. I spoke with a couple people who have had lengthy careers at the Fed, and they think Long and Custodia have a pretty strong case. Those conversations happened before the FTX blowup. Perhaps things have changed now. But this will remain one of the most important under-the-radar legal battles to watch in the new year. Crypto needs banking access, or the U.S. crypto ecosystem will be starved of on and off ramps, liquidity, and customer credibility. As a closing note, this sort of thing isn't all bad. If you want to red pill good people, cut off their banking access. 
Nothing screams buy Bitcoin quite like institutionalized unpersoning, financial speech crackdowns, and morality banking. Narcotics, or quote-unquote pharmaceutical companies, get bank accounts at big banks, but not marijuana dispensaries. Cartels retain banking access, but not truck drivers. This is bullshit. You know it, I know it, and they know it. This is why I choose war versus retreat. Section 4.9, State versus Federal Stablecoins. Stablecoins, not Bitcoin or ETH, are now the backbone of the crypto economy. Talk about the progress of various types of stablecoins in the next chapter. But for now, know that there's two things to keep an eye on early in 2023. Number one, New House Financial Services Chair Representative Patrick McHenry wants a digital dollar, as does outgoing Chair Representative Maxine Waters. Congressman McHenry admits that their bipartisan legislation is a bit of an ugly baby, but it's still arguably an improvement for the crypto industry. Their bill could answer whether the Fed has the authority to issue a CBDC. Banks might not like this as it could threaten their deposits and pave the way for banks and non-banks alike to issue stablecoins subject to certain licensing requirements. It would resolve concerns around the type of assets that could back stablecoins, cash, and short-dated treasuries. 2. Algorithmic stablecoins will be in the crosshairs in both Europe under MICA as noted above and the U.S., It's hard to argue that Luna was anything other than a colossal mess for market participants worldwide, and its failure could lump other sustainable, collateralized stablecoin implementations like Maker's Die with the truly suspect, like Ohm. Odds are good that the best-case scenario for algorithmic stablecoins is that they are left alone and relegated to DeFi, never touching regulated exchanges. That would leave the experiments, which have historically proven to be crypto's WMDs, fully cordoned off from the legacy financial systems. That $10 trillion question is whether the future of stablecoins sits under the Paxos model, preferred jurisdiction in New York State, or the USDC model, preferred jurisdiction as federal. I find it hard to believe Tether will prove to be the eventual winner, though. There's a lot riding on a gradual flippening of stablecoin market caps versus a sudden shock. USDT exchange volumes dominate on international exchanges and are an order of magnitude higher than USDC. Section 4.10. The Ground Game. An underappreciated component of crypto policy efforts this past year is in what we'll call the ground game the thankless, multi-year, never-ending work of educating and scoring and supporting policymakers, eking out state-by-state progress in the laboratories of democracy, fielding pro-crypto candidates in new elections. The major trade associations have staffed up this year and done yeoman's work. They'll continue to have their hands full in the new year in the wake of the FTX fallout, but at least they'll have 19 new crypto allies in the next Congress, thanks to the organized effort of one of crypto's top super PACs. This year, it's all about doing the work of reshaping the narrative, setting our own standards as an industry, and building solutions to the problems that plagued us this last go-round. Many of those solutions will be built at the centralized infrastructure level that we discussed last chapter. Enterprise-grade security of exchanges and custodians, reliable and intuitive self-custody, financial, operational, and governance transparency, proof of reserves, and segregated customer accounts, etc. It's the decentralized software that we're most excited about, though. And those solutions are what the rest of this report is all about. It's time to talk about cryptocurrencies, scalable layer one transaction ledgers, DeFi, NFTs, DAOs, and decentralized infrastructure networks. In other words, let's get to the good stuff.